Thank you for almost six and a half million downloads so far this year. Please help us reach more listeners in 2023 by making a year-end tax-deductible gift. For a year-end donation of $250 or more, we'll send you our latest book, The Wittenberg Trail, Paths to Lutheranism, and a new recording of 22 hymns featuring the Lutheran Public Radio Choir. You can make a secure online contribution at issuesetc.org. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your support. You got all these great answers to all these great questions. You've got all these great answers to all these great questions. Timothy asks, why are there no more prophets or miracles today? Why were the wondrous acts of God seemingly confined to the Old Testament and the Gospels? That's a very good question. Others are asking questions as well. Why, if Roman Catholics, Anglicans, and other Lutherans all believe in the bodily presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper, why don't they commune together? Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc., coming to you live from the studios of Lutheran Public Radio in Collinsville, Illinois. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We'll be responding to your unanswered Bible questions with Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer and Pastor Brian Wolfmiller for the first hour or so of the program. Then we'll be looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the one-year lectionary. Advent 2 is ahead. Pastor Peter Bender of the Concordia Catechetical Academy will be our guest. Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer is pastor of Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas, and author of the book Reading Isaiah with Luther. Brian, welcome back. Great to be here, Todd. And Pastor Brian Wolfmiller, pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas. He posts theology on the YouTube channel Wolfmiller One, and he's author of several books, including His American Christianity Failed. Brian, welcome to you. Thank you. Pastor Wolfmiller, Zach asks this. At present, I have family members who are not Lutheran, though hope springs eternal. They've often gone with the Baptist standby that Lutherans are too Roman Catholic and don't seem to like the sign of the cross or bowing during the processional or bowing at all. I've tried to explain these as something that we're doing respectively to remember our baptism in Christ, to show respect to the Lord who is present and who gives his wonderful gifts in the divine service, but it still seems to be a point of contention. Is there something that you would recommend that might help them better understand this? I've written, explained, shared resources, but nothing seems to work. Thanks in advance for your time and blessings. What would you say? I think this is great, Zach, that you're having these conversations with your family and that you're thinking of them as, I like to think of it like this, as pre-Lutheran. Everyone's pre-Lutheran in my own imagination, including our family and friends and neighbors and so forth. I would say one of the important things about these conversations is to try to keep it on the main point. So if someone is troubled by bowing at the processional cross, then say, well, don't do it. There's no command in Scripture that requires such a thing, and it's an adiaphora. Don't do not do it. Even making the sign of the cross, even though it's an ancient and important tradition, if that's what's troubling them, then don't do it. In order to get to the main thing, which is the proper distinction between law and gospel, and when it comes to worship, the truth that Christ is present with us, both in his word and in his body and blood on the table as he serves us from, from his altar, so that all the things that we're doing are confessing that truth. And that's the truth of the Scripture. It's nice in these conversations, especially with Baptists and Evangelicals and those who hold to the truth of God's Word, to bring back the conversation to that central element. Hey, we want to go to the church that teaches the Bible and believes the Bible. And that's why I'm Lutheran, because Jesus says, this is my body. And the Lutherans say, all right, we'll go with it. 
In other words, we don't try to talk away or reason away or take away the clear teaching of the Scriptures. And I think that's where the conversations can bear fruit, especially when they're helping us dig deeper into the Scriptures. And let these other things, a comfort with the liturgy and the reverence that is seems so foreign and strange, that'll come along later as we're holding on to the truth that Christ and Christ alone is the Savior of sinners, and he gives us that forgiveness in his word and sacraments. Pastor Ketchumar, Joe in Ohio says, in 2 Kings 13, an Israelite is brought back to life after touching Elisha's bones. In Acts 19, the handkerchief that touched Paul was brought to the sick who were healed. Do you think that relics at one time were efficacious before their abuse, but like the bronze serpent before it was treated like a god, or in the writings of Augustine, the city of God, who discusses the relics of St. Stephen, I'm not trying to make a point, just an interesting thought. Joe, when we talk about relics, what we have in the scriptures, it's not the same thing as relics. I mean, so we need to be clear about that. For example, you're discussing this whole understanding of the bronze serpent. That was in the history of salvation, where Moses as prophet is speaking God's word, and the miracles and the sign that come from God for the prophet to verify and to validate the truth of his word is there with that bronze serpent. Remember, they refused to listen to Moses, and God sends, of course, the fiery serpents, and when the people are bitten by them, they die. But Moses is that mediator. So they go back to Moses, and they ask Moses to plead for them, and then Moses is the one who gives them this word from God to make this bronze serpent and to look at it. So understand that that right there is a miracle that is tied to the prophetic office to validate that Moses is the one with the true word. Same thing with the apostles. When you you talk about uh, the handkerchief, This is validating the apostolic preaching and teaching is in line with all the prophetic preaching and teaching of the Old Testament scriptures. So when you get to Elisha, Elisha himself is a prophet, and this miracle validates the prophetic speech of Elisha, what Elisha was doing. And he himself kind of becomes this image and picture of what Christ will do in his miracles. And these miracles, of course, are pointing toward the kingdom of God, the incarnation bringing this new creation and restoring all things. So when you talk about this in 2 Kings chapter 8, that Elisha is the one who is going to restore a child to life. And so remember there in 2 Kings chapter 8, I mean, we're kind of going back a little bit from 13. This is where Elisha is the one who's telling this woman who had the child restored, arise and depart from your household and go and sojourn somewhere else, for the Lord has called for a famine. So here Elisha is saying that there's going to be a famine on the land. He sends the woman away. And now the king, of course, is talking to Gehazi, which is a servant of Elisha. And Elisha, you know, did these things, these miracles that validate what he's saying, that famine again is when the people refuse to listen to the word of God, just kind of like the the bronze serpent. Remember, the fiery serpents come because the Israelites refuse to listen to God's word from the mouth of the prophet Moses. And so you're having the same kind of situation here with Elisha himself. So the king, of course, is talking to Gehazi about all of these things that Elijah did and how he restored to life this this dead child. And, And so they're talking about that he restores to life, which, of course, Jesus will do when Jesus brings a child to life also. Remember that Elisha also earlier previously in chapter four had uh, taken the 20 loaves of bread 
and fed a hundred men. So you you see that multiplication of the bread to feed people, like what Jesus did. But of course, Jesus does this on a far greater scale. So when you have the bones of Elisha in that grave, and notice that what's going on there is that uh, Moabite. So you have a Moabite touches the bones of Elijah. I mean, this is what I, I think even more fascinating than anything. It's a Moabite touches the bones of Elijah when he's thrown down into the grave and he comes back to life. This, of course, ultimately is pointing to the validity of the word preached by Elisha. And all of these words and the promises of God are fulfilled in Christ, the seed who crushes a serpent's head, the one who is bringing us the new creation, restoring us, that we are from dust and dust to be returned, but it's Christ who will go down into the grave and he'll come out again. So this is pointing toward that hope of the resurrection of the body itself and, of course, the conversion of a Gentile. I mean, you got the Moabites here and this whole thing. And so that's pointing to the person and work of Christ. It's pointing to the validity of that word, that this is the word that is to be heard, that promise of the seed who will crush the serpent's head, the one who alone will defeat death and deliver us from sin. Now, that's different than the whole concept of the relics we had in the past. The relics are this idea that, uh, that there's no word of God here. There's just an idea that you have a piece of a bone of a saint or a tooth or, or something like that, maybe a toenail or a hair or something, and that somehow that is supposed to take away time and purgatory if you go and you visit it and you, you have uh, prayers before it. So it's not the same thing as what we know of as relics. These accounts in the scripture are directly tied to salvation history. The proclamation of the promise of the seed of the woman, the serpent's going to be crushed by this seed, the Christ. He's going to defeat the devil and death. So I don't think we want to confuse the two and then just assume relics. Uh, relics, again, is in that whole category of these man-made systems of trying to make God merciful. And that, of course, is idolatry when you worship without God's word. I was interested in the St. Augustine quote here, so I looked it up, and you can find a, a probably 10 pages of miracles. This is City of God, Book 22, Chapter 10, where Augustine talks about all the miracles worked in his day and a lot at the relics of St. Stephen. And as much as I hate to do it, Joe, I just, I think Augustine is wrong. Here's how he concludes. So this is in the next chapter. Sorry, I'm looking, it's, I got my Roman numerals wrong. So the descriptions are in Book 22, Chapter 8. And then in chapter 9, Augustine summarizes this, talking about the martyrs. For this faith they died, and now ask these benefits from the Lord in whose name they were slain. So Augustine has a, a pre-Middle Ages view. It's like a half-step toward the relic theology of the Middle Ages, which is worse than Augustine, but you can see it starting to grow here in Augustine, that by virtue of their faith and maybe even their works in which they died, that the saints and the martyrs can now request miracles on behalf of people on earth. And this, for whatever's going on there, this takes our attention away from the gifts that Jesus wants to give. The main thing that we should learn, and I remember with joy when Pastor Ketchelmeyer showed me this 20 years ago, is that the Lord always works through physical means. He always works through stuff to bless. He even continues to work through the water of baptism and the body and blood of Jesus bound up to the bread and the wine in the sacrament of the altar, and the Lord continues to use those things to bless us. That's not a relic theology. 
That's just how the Lord delivers his gifts to us. And in these different times and different ways, he would perform miracles, as Pastor Ketchermeyer was saying, to confirm the word. And he continues to do that now, but he has not given us the obligation or command or even the comfort or promise that we would find these miracles in any way connected with people who are somehow super spiritual or died confessing the faith. So I think Augustine is at least confused at that point, if not just wrong. Todd, again, in the scripture itself, we don't have the case that the bones of Elisha were now taken out of the grave and they were put into some kind of a glass chamber or something where people could go before at a tabernacle and then they could receive a, a healing or some kind of a miraculous resurrection from the dead or something like that. We don't see it. Same thing with the apostolic handkerchief. We don't have that. It was not put on display. They were not told to put it on display. It wasn't then handed down from ages to do this. So, I mean, when you look at the scripture, the example, of course, that Joe's using about that bronze serpent. That bronze serpent was used at one time for one purpose, and that was to validate Moses. And it was used when those Israelites who were bitten by those fiery serpents were healed at that time with that word. And so later on, when it was used apart from that word for a different purpose, then it became idolatry, because idolatry is worship without God's word. Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer is our guest, along with Pastor Brian Wolfmiller. We're responding to your unanswered Bible questions. We have a question from Brendan on why Roman Catholics, Anglicans, and all Lutherans don't commune together next. Ten questions to ask every time you read the Bible is the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for November. This new resource will help you navigate God's Word with clarity and confidence. Ten questions to ask every time you read the Bible is published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number, 1-800-325-3040, or browse before you buy at issuesetc.org. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month. Ten questions to ask every time you read the Bible. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod's life ministry is thousands of people sharing Christ's love and mercy and giving witness to our Lord's creation of life, His design for marriage and the family, and the God-given value of all human life from conception to natural death. Working with many partners, LCMS Life Ministries sponsors human care efforts that meet the needs of body and soul and provides resources and educational events for all ages. To learn more, email lifeministry at lcms.org and visit lcms.org slash life. Equipping the priesthood of all believers, you're listening to Issues Etc. Memoria Press is a family-run publisher of classical Christian education materials for homeschools and private schools. Every page of the Memoria Press curriculum leads students to a mastery of content, an understanding of the classical heritage of the Christian West, and an appreciation of truth, goodness, and beauty. If you're interested in learning more, visit memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR23. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. memoriapress.com. Are you tired of those who change their Christian confession because they are ashamed of what they are called to believe in today's world? Scripture is clear on issues which many would like to claim are cultural but have no place in God's church. We at Zion Lutheran in Barris, Wisconsin, and St. Peter Lutheran Clintonville are not embarrassed to boldly confess that Scripture is God's revelation of His Christ, our Savior, the only peace, comfort, and hope in our fallen world. It's why we gather each week to receive Him who comes to us in word and sacrament. For service times, visit zionstpe.com. 
Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're answering your unanswered Bible questions with Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer and Pastor Brian Wolfmiller. A solid resource for your general Bible study is the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for November. Ten questions to ask every time you read the Bible. You'll find this resource at our website, issuesetc.org, or call Concordia Publishing House. Ask for ten questions to ask every time you read the Bible. 1-800-325-3040, 1-800-325-3040, the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for November. Pastor Wolf Miller, a question from Brendan. He says, why can't Roman Catholics, Anglicans, and other Lutherans receive the Eucharist at a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod congregation when they all believe that Jesus is physically present in the elements? Thank you for your time. This is a good question because it has already a really good assumption bound up to it, and that is that fellowship in the Lord's Supper has to do with fellowship and doctrine. That's something that most people miss, but Brendan is right here by comparing what it is that people believe and knowing that that's the number one thing when it comes to the unity of the doctrine. But I think there's a couple of things that we want to consider especially when it comes to what those churches do confess about the body and blood of Jesus that's there. But let's just perhaps skip over that just for a second and go to the question that we want to have a clear answer to, and that is, what unity of doctrine should come before unity in communion? What standard should we set? And it's very interesting that different churches answer that in different ways. So the way a confessional Lutheran is going to answer this question is going to actually be different than the way a Catholic and an Episcopalian or an Anglican answer it. The Lutheran answer that it is enough for the unity of the church that we agree on the sacraments rightly administered and the gospel rightly preached. And so when we look at another church body and we say that you are not one with us, what we're saying is that you are not preaching the gospel right or you are not administering the sacraments according to the Lord's institution. So that's where the Lutherans draw the line. The Anglicans draw the line at both, I guess they say the gospel or the doctrine and the sacraments and church discipline. Those three things become their ecumenical platform. The Roman Catholics draw the line just at the church, at the Pope. If you are under submission to the Pope, you're in, and if you're not, you're out. So they would answer that question very differently than we answer that question. And so we say the reason why a Roman Catholic and an Anglican can't commune with us is because they don't yet confess with us the gospel in its purity and the sacraments according to the Lord's institution. And there's different ways that they don't agree, but that's the basic structure of the answer. So a question for you, Pastor Ketchelmeyer, from Daryl. He says, this relates to the story of Naomi and Ruth. Was it wrong for Naomi to tell her daughters to stay behind? This has always troubled me, especially the idea that Naomi seems okay with the idea that Orpah return to foreign gods. If Naomi believed in the one true God, would she have not wanted others to believe as well? Oh, this is a wonderful question of meditation here. So that in this question itself, this is where we start to unravel this whole understanding of what idolatry is. Again, worship without God's work. And so when you talk about the deities of the Old Testament, when somebody is worshiping the Moabite deity, the gods of Moab, I mean, that is in the form and the way of worship without God's work. 
So that's going to be the key here. So in this passage itself, understand that this is really this kind of a come to terms moment of what it means to pick up your cross and follow Jesus. I mean, I know the text isn't literally pick up your cross and follow Jesus, but bear with me on this. If you look at Ruth chapter one, it opens up by saying there's a famine in the land. And like we've said many times in the past, in ancient Israel, when they were in the land of Canaan, in that promised land with God's promise, that if they hear his voice and they rejoice in it, then there would be plenty of water from the heavens and the earth would produce. You would have wheat and you would have wine and everything would be fine. But if you did not listen to God's voice, if you refused and rejected the work of the Holy Spirit, resisting what God is trying to do with his word, then these things would be stopped. You would no longer have the waters from the heaven. The earth would not produce. You would not have wine, and it would not be fine. And so this was a warning sign that people were not listening to God's word. So right away, we have this understanding that God gives his word to his people, this word that's tied to that promised land, which is tied to the Messiah, the baby who will be born in that land. This is the boy of joy, the one who will come up from the grave to give us eternal life. But yet when the people refuse to listen about this promise, the promised seed who will crush the serpent's head, then God sends them to the people that they would rather listen to. I mean, if you want to worship in the way of the Moabites, then you can go to the Moabites or wherever it may be, the Canaanites themselves, the Philistines, whoever it is. So this is how it opens up by saying there was a famine in the land. And so there was a man of Bethlehem, of course, house of bread. This is, of course, the whole passage is tied to the birth of David, which points to the true David, which is Jesus of the tribe of Judah. So you have this whole thing set up where the people in that land were not listening to God's word. And so Elimelech, which means uh, my God is king, he goes off and he sojourns into the land of Moab. But when you're in the land of Moab, this is going to be a land that is worshiping in the way of the world. It's not a land that's rejoicing in the voice of Yahweh and this promise of the seed. So it's in this land where they take up children. I should say they're, they're sons, of course. I get married. Melon and Kilion, they, they get married to the Moabite women. And so this is the issue when Elimelech dies, Melon dies, Kilion dies, and now Naomi is left with no husband, no man no promise takes them back to the land because that promise of that land, that parcel of land itself is what gives you that guarantee of participation in the incarnation, the whole uh, restoration in what the, the true David is going to come to do. And so it's at this point in time where you have a famine, you have death of husband and two sons. And this is where she, all of a sudden, you have Naomi realizing that something has now changed from that famine. They've been there about 10 years, but now she had heard something. She had heard that Yahweh has visited his people and given them food. The famine has come to an end. And so she is ready to return to the land, that land of promise, and go back to be a participant in the hope of the bodily resurrection from the ground. And it's at this point where she's telling her two daughters that this is a kind of a, like I said at the beginning, kind of a take up your cross and follow Jesus moment. So the daughters are saying, this is bitter. Okay, I'm no longer a pleasant or sweet. I'm now bitter because of this whole thing that's happened to my life. And this is how the reality of life under the cross is in this world that's falling apart. You have the promises of God, and you trust in these promises against all of the experiences of life where everything goes wrong. And so she's trying to teach them in this teaching moment, saying that it's exceedingly bitter for me. 
and the hand of Yahweh has gone out against me. So this is what it means to confess Yahweh. And so, of course, the two daughters, they know Yahweh as members of this family, okay? Both Ruth and Orpah, they know Yahweh. And so she's giving him this, this moment to say, the hand of Yahweh is upon me. Go back to your worship of your gods where life is easy, where it's uh, your best life now. It's all about don't worry, be happy. Everything will go well for you. You're going to have prosperity and all the good things will happen to you. Or this real theology that Yahweh's hand is against me. And so that's really what's going on here. It's this moment where they're going to say, are we going to continue confessing the faith? The promise that Yahweh is the one who is king, Yahweh is the one who delivers on his promises, and all his promises are fulfilled in that seed, or are we going to take the easy way out and go back to the worship in the way of the Moabites? So again, when we're talking about their gods, it's the imagination of deities that they have, what they imagine the divine to be like. That's a false image. So they don't have God's word. They don't have the promise of the seed. They don't have the promise of the true David who will come and will deliver us from death. And so this is that moment right there where it's kind of a, are you with Christ or against Christ? Which way? Uh, it's the take up your cross and follow Jesus or go back to the easy way of Moabite. So, I mean, that's really what's going on here. And you can see that you have Orpah saying, I'll take the easy way out. I don't like this stuff where Yahweh's hand is heavy upon us, that things don't go the way that I want them to go, that Yahweh's not a domesticated deity that does whatever I want him to do. So I'll take the easy way out, and I'm going back to worship in the style of the contemporaries of Moab, whereas you have Ruth, who then confesses and says, no, 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 that your God is my God. Your people is my people. And that's where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Buried in this promise, this promise of the resurrection that will be fulfilled in Jesus. So this is the confession of faith that you have here with Ruth at the opportune time. We are answering your unanswered Bible questions with Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer and Pastor Brian Wolfmiller. On the other side, Timothy has a questions about prophets and miracles today. rest from the world's headlong rush to Christmas? Some place where you and your family can slow down and prepare for Christ's birth at the church's rather than the world's pace? A midweek evening Advent service is the perfect time for your first visit to a Christ-centered, cross-focused Lutheran church. Learn more on the Find a Church page at issuesetc.org or send an email to talkback at issuesetc.org. Do you want your neighbors and community to see what you're celebrating this Christmas season? Why not display an outdoor nativity in front of your home or church? It's a great way to show others what Christmas is all about, the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Check out the Outdoor Nativity Store at OutdoorNativityStore.com. Durable, affordable, and American-made nativities. OutdoorNativityStore.com. OutdoorNativityStore.com. Join Lutherans for Life in Washington, D.C., Thursday, January 19th through Saturday, January 21st, 2023. Go to lutheransforlife.org to learn more about LFL's Conference for Adults, LFL at the March, and the Y for Life Youth Conference in Washington, D.C. The registration deadline is December 15th. Lutherans for Life. 
equipping Lutherans and their neighbors to be gospel-motivated voices for life, lutheransforlife.org. As we prepare for the Advent season this year, it's time for some contemplation. Your Christmas are from the 80s. They're made of styrofoam, the glitter has dropped off, and they're being held together with toothpicks. Don't celebrate another Christmas hearkening back to the age of glitter balls. See Ad Crusom's beautifully designed Christmonds together with our book describing how they fit into the church here. Visit adcrusom.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com. We're supported by listeners like you. You're listening to Issues Etc. I like to think of the deaconess vocation as driven by two things, the love of Christ and the needs of our neighbor. Issues Etc. regular guest, Dr. James Busher, Director of Deaconess Studies at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, on the vocation of deaconess. First, the deaconess is moved by the love of Christ, who came not to be served, but to serve. Yet I think we can also see the profound needs around us, broken families, loneliness, despair. Deaconesses help the church to become a true family that manifests the love of Christ in our love for one another and especially for those in need. For more information on the Deaconess Studies program at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, visit ctsfw.edu or call Concordia Theological Seminary at 1-800-481-2155. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. On this Tuesday, November 29th, we're responding to your unanswered Bible questions with Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer and Pastor Brian Wolfmiller. So, Pastor Wolf Miller, a question from Timothy. Why are there no more prophets or miracles today? Why were the wondrous acts of God seemingly confined to the Old Testament and Gospels? It's probably has something to do with what we were talking about before with the miracles that happened in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It's probably helpful to realize that even when they were happening there, they were not normal. So that if you were to just take a a line graph of history and put in all the miracles they would be the strange and very unique times when the miracles were happening and when they're not that's the normal times that's one of the reasons why they are miracles and so unique pastor Ketchermeyer mentioned a number of times before how the lord uses miracles to confirm the word and this is taught for us really wonderfully by martin chemnitz especially in his incredian he takes luther's theology kind of summarizes it and says that there's two kinds of calls that the Lord issues. The one is the immediate call, where the Lord calls someone directly. That would be like the call of the prophet or the apostle. And then there's the mediated call, where the Lord calls someone through the church. That would be like the calls that the three of us have. And the ones who are called immediately speak directly for the Lord. They are inspired by the Holy Spirit in what they say. The question is, because they're words are to be received as authoritative how do we know how can we confirm that someone is speaking by the lord and not just making stuff up and so Kemnitz says the lord gives the gifts of miracles to prove the immediate call the reason then why we're not in a time of miracles is because we're not in a time of immediate calls the three of us have calls from the church mediated through the lord's people and that means our job is to not speak directly from god 
I heard the Holy Spirit say to me this morning, and now I'm going to say to you, that's not our calling. Our calling is to preach and teach and bring to people's hearts and lives the words of the apostles and prophets that were inspired and written and preserved for us in the Scripture. So the Bible itself and the completion of the Scripture, the biblical canon, is the reason why we don't have signs and miracles like we did in the times of the apostles and prophets. Because the Lord's people now are to receive the word with joy, but to compare it to the scriptures to make sure that what we're teaching and preaching holds true. Now, why the Lord has chosen to do it in the way he's arranged history, I don't know. But I think the text that comes to mind is Hebrews 1, where it says, In times past the Lord spoke to his people by the prophets, but now in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. So that the Lord Jesus has determined that his own preaching and the preaching of his directly called apostles would be the last word and the church would be built on that. So we confess now the sufficiency of the scriptures and this is probably the the reason why the Lord doesn't see it fit to give people the gift of miracles and working signs because he doesn't give that authoritative preaching office anymore disconnected from the written scriptures. I mean, the whole understanding, of course, with the Old Testament scriptures, these are the Old Testament prophets who are proclaiming that the Christ would come. You have that intertestamental period when we, of course, get the Septuagint. In that time period, there's no prophet. So they're waiting, and there's no prophet. There's no prophet until John the baptizer comes onto the scene. And so when the baptizer's on the scene, now we have this prophet that's saying, this is the Lamb of God. Behold, the one who takes away the sin of the world. And so this is what John the baptizer came to do. All the prophets before, John the baptizers, all the apostles, they say the same thing. And they had the miracles that confirm that. But what we have now is we have the warnings of the New Testament of false prophets with false signs and wonders that will arise. And so this is the the area that we're in in the New Testament is just a constant barrage of false prophets claiming a new word, a different word than was heard by the apostles and the prophets in the written scripture. And they are claiming this different word, different message with a different Jesus, and then they try to validate it with these false signs and wonders. So the apostles themselves warned us about these false prophets arising with their false signs and wonders that would leave of the people away. A question for you, Pastor Wolf Miller. Debbie says, I'm a recovering Pentecostal. Started at a Lutheran church three months ago. What is the Lutheran view of backsliding? This is a really common question where we're cutting our theological teeth and a good one to get into the not only the Bible, but the way that Lutherans approach theology. Here's the basic thing. The scriptures in both the Old Testament and the New Testament warn us about the possibility of believing for a time and then falling away. I think the clearest text in my own mind is the parable of the sower, which Jesus tells, you can see it in Matthew 12, and he talks about the seed that falls amongst the stones, and it grows up, and then the sun comes out, and it withers, and it dies. And when Jesus is explaining what that means, he says, these are those who receive the word with joy and believe for a time, but when persecution comes along, they don't believe anymore. They stop believing. So that's an example, and we see this in the scriptures in a number of ways, that it is possible to believe for a time and then to fall away from that. In fact, there's twin dangers here, and the twin dangers are, on the one hand, 
that we think that because we're Christians, we can do whatever we want, that sin won't hurt or harm us, that we hand ourselves over to sin. We lose contrition and we fall from faith or we fall from repentance, I suppose. Or on the other hand, we lose faith. We think that we've sinned so terribly that the Lord can't forgive us. Or the twin side of that error is that we think that we don't need forgiveness anymore, that we've managed to be good enough to be accepted by God. That is what St. Paul warns about in Galatians 5.4, that you think that you will be made perfect by the law. You've fallen from grace so that we remain in the Lord's gift of salvation by repentance. I looked up, just to dig into a little bit of our Lutheran doctrine on this, probably the premier quote in our Lutheran confessions is Luther in small called part 3, 3, paragraph 42 and following. So you can track that down online too. It's a beautiful passage where Luther talks about the idea that some people say that once you're baptized or once you believe, it's impossible to lose your faith or to lose your salvation. He goes after that pretty hard from the scriptures. And he quotes 1 John 1 and 1 John 3, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But then, John says, if anyone sins, he is not of us. And Luther says, this is the way we understand it, is that we always have sin. The Christian always has sin and needs the Lord's mercy. But sin does not have us. We have sin, but sin does not possess us or overcome us. The Holy Spirit doesn't allow that to happen. But then, digging into some of our other Lutheran fathers, and I think this is maybe the most important part, Debbie, when the Lutherans think about this, I'm looking, for example, at Hollitz, one of the Golden Age or Bronze Age Lutheran fathers who taught about this. And when he talks about falling away, he lists all the examples in the Old Testament of the people who were restored. So that the Lutheran idea, the, the big thing for the Lutherans is not that you can lose your salvation, but that the Lord can win you back, that he is the one who goes to seek and save the one that was lost. So, for example, he quotes Moses in Exodus 4, where the Lord is about to destroy him because he hadn't circumcised his kids, and then he changes his mind, or Numbers chapter 20, where the Lord is going to wipe out the people, and then he changes his mind, or 2 Samuel 11, where the Lord is going to wipe out David, but then he changes his mind, and so the Lord is always able to bring us back and restore us. So is it possible to backslide? Yes. Is it possible to to be restored? Oh, God be praised. That's the main thing. Yes, the Lord is always working and calling and reviving and rescuing us from our sins. Pastor Brian Wolfmiller is our guest, along with Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer. They are responding to your unanswered Bible questions. A question from Drew in Michigan is next, and it'll take us to the book of Revelation. Thank you for almost six and a half million downloads so far this year. Please help us reach more listeners in 2023 by making a year-end tax-deductible gift. For a year-end donation of $250 or more, we'll send you our latest book, The Wittenberg Trail, Paths to Lutheranism, and a new recording of 22 hymns featuring the Lutheran Public Radio Choir. You can make a secure online contribution at issuesetc.org. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your support. For nearly 140 years, the Lutheran Witness has taught the faith, defended it against error, and shown forth the great treasures of the Lutheran Church and biblical doctrine. 
We're continuing this legacy by publishing issues and articles that help you see the world from a Lutheran perspective and that teach biblical doctrine and show forth the treasures of God's Word. Visit our website to learn more and how to subscribe, witness.lcms.org. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Did you know that Luther Academy has been providing continuing education for confessional Lutheran pastors and laypeople worldwide for more than 20 years? Luther Academy publishes Logia, the Confessional Lutheran Dogmatic Series, and Luther Digest. Find out more about Luther Academy and sign up to receive their free email newsletter at lutheracademy.com. lutheracademy.com and like them on Facebook, facebook.com slash lutheracademy. This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we move farther along in St. Luke with Jesus Heals the Demoniac, Healing and Preaching, Calling of Four Disciples, Jesus Cleanses a Leper, and Which is Easier to Say? Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or on your favorite podcast provider. You can teach lay people theology. You're listening to Issues Etc. If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Dr. Russell Dawn, president of Concordia University, Chicago. Indeed, the quest for truth is at the core of a university's purpose. The liberal arts, illuminated by the revealed truths of Scripture, are powerful for equipping students for a life of self-governance. A disciple is one who follows the master. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? He said that it means to take up one's cross. The cross is thus the symbol of dying for others, of dying to self for the sake of serving others. And a life of service is a life well-lived. Truth. Freedom, Vocation, Concordia University, Chicago, cuchicago.edu. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. We're responding to your unanswered Bible questions with Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer, author of the book Reading Isaiah with Luther, and Pastor Brian Wolfmiller. He's author of several books, including His American Christianity Failed. Now, if you enjoy our bi-weekly interviews with Pastors Wolfmiller and Ketchelmeyer responding to your unanswered Bible questions, please make a year-end tax-deductible donation to support the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. For a year-end gift of $250 or more, We'll send you our latest book, The Wittenberg Trail, Paths to Lutheranism, and a new recording of 22 hymns featuring the Lutheran Public Radio Choir. You can make a secure online contribution at issuesetc.org, or by check, make your check payable to Issues Etc., and send it to Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your support at the end of 2022. Pastor Ketchelmeyer, Drew in Michigan has this question regarding the book of Revelation. He says, with the church year recently coming to an end, was the book of Revelation written before the Gospel of John? And is it the belief of biblical scholars that the warning in Revelation 22, 18, and 19 is speaking of all of Scripture or just the book of Revelation? 
Okay. Now, a couple of things here. I, I think what we want to see is that the book of Revelation itself is a sermon on the ascension of Jesus. I mean, that's really what's going on here. This is the, the sermon on the ascension of Jesus. I'm going to be of the opinion that the gospel of John was written prior to this, and John is giving his gospel. So he's writing it down so you can be certain and sure of the message of salvation found in Jesus alone. And now when you have the book of Revelation, this is where it's a kind of like a, a sermon vision itself, a, a preaching of comfort in the midst of being in exile, in the midst of not actually seeing around us as if the kingdom of God has come, because what we experience seems like it's it's not the kingdom of God. It, it seems like God's kingdom is still nowhere to be found, that God's nowhere to be heard, that God doesn't even care anymore. He's not watching. And so it's that sermon to assure you that Jesus has ascended into heaven. He is the king. And he is in control, even though things are going out of control. He is the one mediator between God and man. So it's this message of assurance in the midst of waiting for the kingdom of God to come. I mean, we say that Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead, and we're waiting for that. And we say, how long, O Lord, will it be until that ends? Now, when the book of Revelation is put on to the end of Scripture, I mean, we see that passage, of course, that you should not add or subtract, and we see that kind of sequentially, it ends at the end of the whole Bible, and therefore it just automatically fits in with the rest. Fair enough. I mean, the vision itself is giving us a template that any vision that's given by the prophet or apostle cannot be added to or taken away from. You cannot twist or distort the vision that God gives to a prophet, uh, the apostle, and make it fit into your own opinion and imagination. That's a false image. And so, yes, it applies directly to that vision. It would apply to any vision of any of the prophets, and thus it would also likewise apply to the entire Scripture itself, because the written word is the proclaimed preaching of what the prophets saw and heard, what they were to teach us about Jesus, so that we would set our eyes upon Jesus. We would look to him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we would look to Jesus as our righteousness in the midst of this world as wicked. And so, yes, you can rightfully apply that to Revelation itself. You can rightfully apply that to all the visions of the prophets. They can't add to or subtract. Neither can we. If we change it, distort it, and we say, well, we don't like this, but we would like this instead, we can't do that either. And so it does also, therefore, likewise apply to all of Scripture. Nathan has a question for you, Pastor Wolf Miller. In Matthew 10, 33, Jesus says, Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. 2 Timothy 2, 12, if we deny him, he will also deny us. 1 John 3, 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. My question is, Peter's denial and any other Christian who may deny Christ publicly for fear of death or any other reason, are these verses of Scripture absolutely true? It seems that they are not because Peter, as we call him, wasn't denied before the Father in heaven. In fact, he was restored threefold by Christ. This seems a contradiction in Scripture. Multiple New Testament passages state that if you deny Christ, you will be denied. Yet we find in the Apostle Peter an exception to this stern warning of Christ. In general, when studying the Bible, should we be watching for exceptions to absolute statements in the Bible? That seems like a slippery slope when we hold that Scriptures are clear and true and inerrant. It does, and I would say that this is not what we're doing, looking for exceptions to absolute statements, but we should always be trying to understand the Scripture in context, and I think the error, the reason why this is so difficult 
for Nathan as he's reading the text, these statements, whoever denies me before men, I'll deny him before my father. It seems to me like he's thinking of this almost as the, like the angels in heaven. We know that the angels had a moment to choose either to follow the Lord Jesus or to rebel. And after that choice, that single choice, they were confirmed either in bliss or in, in wickedness. We are not that way. And it's one of the reasons why the Lord speaks to us in the scriptures, so that he would continue to call us to repentance and to faith, to confessing him and to not deny him, but rather to endure all sorts of affliction even as we do confess him. So there are those who have denied Christ and he has restored them both to their faith and to their confession of him. This controversy, by the way, is not a new controversy. It was, among other things, a big part of the controversy with the Donatists, who during the time of persecution, there was those who would deny Christ, even pastors and bishops who would deny the Lord Jesus in order to keep their lives. And Donatists came along and said, you're out. If you do that, you're out. But the church looking at these passages like the restoration of David or the restoration of Peter or even the passages cited in their context would say, no, this is not like some sort of magic formula that locks us in, that confirms us in unbelief, like it's the unforgiven sin or something, but rather it's something that we can repent of and be restored. I think that the place to go to understand this, maybe before I go there, I want to look at Jeremiah 18. But to just look at those two texts that were quoted, 2 Timothy 2.12, if you go to verse 13, right after it says, if we deny him, he denies us. But then it says, if we are faithless, he is faithful. And that gives you a hint that Jesus remains faithful, even when we are faithless, to call us back and woo us and win us. Or in 1 John 2.24, right after it says, no one who denies the Son has the Father, it says, so we would abide in him. There's a way that we think of our whole life as a life of repentance, a life of despising our sin and trusting in Christ and clinging to his word. So Jeremiah 18 gives this beautiful picture when the Lord calls Jeremiah to go down to the potter. And he says, okay, now watch the potter doing his pottery thing. So it's some potter and he's making something on a pottery wheel. And he's making, who knows, maybe he's making a bowl or something. And there's some sort of wonky part of the clay that means his plan to make a bowl has to change. And he goes and he makes something else, a vase or a cup or something like that. And the Lord says, I am the potter. If I come and promise that I'm going to pluck you up and destroy you and you repent, then I change and I bless you. On the other hand, if I promise that I'm going to bless you, and you don't repent, but continue on in wickedness, then I'm going to come and destroy you, pluck you up and throw you down. And it's great because right after the Lord explains this to Jeremiah and, and has him explaining it to us, he says, now go tell the people of Israel, I'm going to pluck you up and throw you down. <laughs> in other words, why does the Lord promise to pluck up and throw down? So that he wouldn't pluck up and throw down. Why does the Lord promise destruction? So that he wouldn't have to destroy. He gives the promise, the threat of the law, to bring us to repentance so that then he could bless us. 
The same thing is true here when we hear this warning of denying the Lord. Why is the Lord warning us of the drastic consequences of denying him? So that we wouldn't come into those consequences. We have a, I don't know how to best explain it, but like a hermeneutical assumption of repentance, that the Lord is always working through his law and through his gospel to call us to faith and trust in him. When we're looking at this whole understanding of denying Jesus, it's not just a one-time event or confessing Jesus, not just a one-time event. So I I think we can get confused if we think it's just a one-time event, say, well, look, St. Peter did this, it was a one-time event, so therefore he should be out. Or whoever does this one time, that person should be out. Again, go back to our whole conversation about Ruth with Naomi and uh, Orpah. I mean, here's Naomi asking, Basically, here's the point in time, a time to make a confession of Yahweh. Do you confess Yahweh to be the living God? Yahweh who he is, whose hand is heavy upon me and has brought things that are bitter and death has happened, but yet we have a promise of life in the seed who's going to crush the serpent's head? Or do you confess the deities of the Moabites, that whole man-made method of worship? So that was a point of confession. Orpah chose not to confess Yahweh, denied Yahweh, and went the other way, whereas Ruth used this as as an opportunity to confess the true God, the true and living God. So look at it that way, that it's that that time uh, of confession. And note how we use this in our own uh, liturgical life as Lutherans. We use this at the rite of confirmation. So it's at the rite of confirmation where you have a a student stand-up, a catechumen who has been studying the catechism, the Christian faith, the basics of the Christian faith, as we have it in the small catechism, and stands up and does not deny Jesus. Jesus. And this is used as a bold example of what we ought to do, that we stand at the time we are given an opportunity to confess Christ. And at that time, we deny the devil and his ways and his works. That's what we do at the rite of confirmation. But that's not a one-time thing. It's not a graduation from the small catechism. It's the example and the pattern of life that we are to have, to be constantly, consistently denying the devil, his ways and his works, and confessing Christ alone for salvation. So, I mean, that's the key here. It's not just a one-time event. It is to be a life of confessing Christ. Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer is pastor of Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas. He's author of the book, Reading Isaiah with Luther. Brian, thank you. Oh, it's great to be here, Todd. And Pastor Brian Wolf Miller is pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas. He posts theology on the YouTube channel Wolf Miller One. And he's author of several books, including His American Christianity Failed. Brian, thanks. Thank you, Todd. Happy New Year. In Hour 2 of Issues Etc., Pastor Peter Bender will be alongside to help us look forward to Sunday morning according to the one-year lectionary. Second Sunday of Advent is ahead. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc., is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. Bye.
I am beautiful because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am accepted because I'm a part of his family through Jesus' shed blood. Unity Lutheran School in East St. Louis, Illinois, shines the light of Christ in one of the most impoverished cities in America. Learn how to support their mission work at unityesl.org. Unityesl.org. Today, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I say yes to God in His ways. In a world awash with all sorts of information, opinions, and ideas, there is still a place where God's Word is the central and only focus. Messiah Lutheran Church, 801 North Madison, Lebanon, Illinois. At 9 o'clock on Sunday mornings, God's people gather there to listen to Him. There you will find His words of law and gospel, and of course, our Lord's Holy Supper. Bible classes focus on the Bible and the Lutheran confessions. Come, listen, believe, and live, and check out our website at messiahlebanon.org. Thanks to our beloved on-demand listeners, Issues Etc. consistently ranks among the top podcasts in religion and spirituality. You can help us climb the charts by subscribing, rating, and reviewing Issues Etc. Type Issues Etc. in your podcast provider, hit the subscription button, and leave us a five-star review. This will make it easier for podcast listeners to find Issues Etc. Help us cast Christ's net on the internet. Subscribe, rate, and review Issues Etc. today. Lutheran Talk. The cause of our salvation doesn't lie within us, but instead it lies outside of us, namely in the mercy of our God who sends his Son to live and die and rise again for us. Lutheran Music. Listen anytime, anywhere with the Lutheran Public Radio mobile app. Download for iPhone, Android, and Kindle at issuesetc.org.